has it been a while? Honest to God, the whole pandemic thing, I've kind of, I've completely lost track of time. So I either talked to you about a month ago or about seven months ago. I'm not sure. This is true, eh? It all, it all seems like we're kind of like in a groundhog day, I think. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure it's one of Bill Murray's better films, but anyhow, it is what it is. You have a new book you've written, yeah? I do, yeah. So it's my uh, it's my sixth book in six years. Uh, my, my kids tell me on a regular basis, they say, Dad, you know, we love you to bits, but you clearly suck at retirement. Um because I've been retired for six years, I've written six books. So this one, I'm not sure how many of your your followers are, are Canadian, Steve, but this is a, an actual history of terrorism in Canada um, since our founding as a country, almost a full century after you guys gained your independence. Mm-hmm. But it's told through it's told through the, the perspective of the of the people that actually worked in counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. So it's not an academic book. It's not a, a history per se. It's actually talking to people who did investigations, recruited human sources, did surveillance, all that kind of stuff. And it's called the Peaceable Kingdom. Now, the only thing is, is it's it's self-published, which means you, you kind of got to get it through me and my website. But uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun talking to my former colleagues who kind of just, you know, wanted to tell their story because, um, you know, you don't hear a lot from intelligence folks. I'm not. Sure, it's better in your country than it is in mine. I mean, every time I turn on the news, there's always an ex-FBI or ex-CIA guy talking to the, you know, to the media. Yeah. Um, up here, no one, no one who worked in the business talks. It's it's really really rare. So I wanted to tell their story for them, tell all of, all of our, our successes and you know, the occasional failure when it comes to terrorism. But um, yeah, it was um, it was a labor of love because I, you know, I worked at the, at the security service when many of these cases were unfolding. So I had a lot of my own personal memories, but it's really cool to get the, you know, the, the experiences of the men and women who actually, you know, worked at the coalface for as long as they did. Mm-hmm. And, um, and all of yeah, these people was, are local, like uh, Canadian uh intelligence organizations and everything yeah yeah so yeah. either either intelligence or law enforcement i did talk to a couple of foreign people that mm-hmm. uh, agreed to talk to me about you know what it was like working alongside of canadians because you know as well as i do all, there's a lot of sharing that goes on in this business mm-hmm. you know obviously you guys in the states are our biggest partner always happy and always will be but when you're working in terrorism and you know you get some wanker who decides to leave your country go to afghanistan it helps to have allies around the world to figure out where he is, what he's doing, and to, to get to him before he starts killing people. So, mm-hmm. yeah, but mostly Canadians, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, Canada, the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, and the U.K. are the... Five eyes. Yeah, five eyes countries. Sort of the sharing of intelligence for um, a lot of things, and counterterrorism included, I imagine. Um, yeah, since the Second World War. It's, it's, it's by far, you know, it's kind of the gold standard of, in terms of intelligence sharing clubs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it makes sense, right? We're all English-speaking. Uh, we all have the same culture, more or less. Uh, kind of the same history, more or less, and we kind of understand each other. So there's, when you get around the table, there's not a lot of kind of awkward silences. Like, it, whereas if you deal, like I remember dealing with the Russians after the after the wall fell, mm-hmm. and we actually had them part of it. If you remember, the G7 became the G8. We, we brought R- Russia in. We thought we could get, make the Russians play nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, look how that worked, right? Um, and uh, it, it was kind of a, a different. It's, there's a different mindset. They just don't have our shared sense of looking at the world. Sure. So you know. Um, it depends. The, the more Western the country is, the more they kind of get it. Um, you know, you're dealing with the Pakistanis or whatever. It's just um, it's a different it's a different view on things, I guess. Mm-hmm. Not that you don't talk to them, but it's just a little more a little more difficult. Yeah, and then all of this um, has to do with uh, counterterrorism pertaining to terrorist attacks within Canada, or is or, it for- or yeah, or Canadians that that blew shit up abroad. So we have we've had an mm-hmm. unfortunate reality, just like you has you've had in, in the states. You know, a bunch of Canadians thought that joining ISIS was a really good idea mm-hmm. in the 2010s and and killed uh, dozens of people uh, in Iraq and Syria and Bangladesh, uh, in North Africa. And so <clears throat> it was any anything that basically either happened here or Canadians that went abroad and did something. And, you Can know, I at the end of the... Something, ahead, I'm, uh, something I'm really curious about, just on, on, the, on that note. Um, so I know that... Muslims across Europe were recruited into ISIS, and now you're telling me Muslims in um, Canada were recruited into ISIS. I feel like it must have happened in the U.S., but I feel like if it would have happened, I would have heard so much about it. Did this? Was this was this a common thing for? Were there any? Yeah. There must have well, been some. It, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so so the estimates are there's between thirty and forty thousand people left their homelands to go join ISIS. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now the most of them, not surprisingly, are from North Africa, Middle East, that kind of stuff, South yeah. Asia. But there, you know, there were like two grand from France that went. Another mm-hmm. fifteen hundred from the United Kingdom went. The estimates I've seen for your country are, are a couple hundred, just as they are here. Gotcha. A couple hundred Americans, a couple hundred Canadians went to join ISIS, and uh, some of them made it. 
and died. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of them didn't make it. You've had a couple of trials in your country where people have been, you know, subject to FBI operations and and charged and, and sent to long jail sentences. Mm-hmm. We haven't had, I think we've only had one successful prosecution about a wannabe, somebody who, or sorry, um, he wasn't a wannabe, he actually went and he, and he came back. Having a, you know, the biggest, the biggest problem with this, of course, is evidence gathering. I mean, you know, they left, but then once they're there, you know, how do you gather evidence in a war zone? Um, mm-hmm. And and given our standards of of you know in our judicial systems, you want to make sure it's the right evidence because you don't want you don't want your case to, to to be lost, right? Which goes to a whole other question about all the all the people that are still over there. People say, well, we need to bring them home, and I'm saying, well, no, we don't. <laughs> uh, you guys made shitty decisions, and you committed crimes in a foreign country. We have to allow those foreign countries every opportunity to try you under their laws. If you killed Iraqis or Syrians or Pakistanis or whatever. Who the hell are we to tell the Pakistanis? Well, you can't try an American or a Canadian. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it is in the same way that if Canadians or Americans went to Southern Asia, you know, Southeast Asia and, and engaged in, in, in acts, sex acts with children, well, you can bet that the Thais and the Indonesians and the Malaysians want the first dibs on them, right? And and and, and so they should get them. So, but you know, yeah, the problem was relatively more manageable, I think, for us on this side of, of the Atlantic, and, and only because it's you know, essentially, if you lived in in France, you could drive to Turkey. Yeah, I was going to say, the. I imagine it's probably hard to join even if you wanted to, because you're going to have to get like an international plane ticket, you're going to be in yeah. a foreign area, you might not speak any of the yeah. languages, it's going to be a whole yeah. whole other ordeal than just driving down, yeah. Well, in a lot of cases, if we knew in advance, we basically, we just seize their passports and mm-hmm. say, you know, you can't go because we know that you're going to go commit a crime in a foreign country, we can't allow that, so we're going to just seize your passport. The unfortunate downside to that, and I talk about it in the book, is that if you, if you t- tell them they can't go, you say, you know, you can't go join ISIS or Al-Shabaab or Al-Qaeda, whatever. Then they get to the point, they say, well, you know, okay, screw you. I want to go fight there. You won't let me. I'll just fight here. And we had a, a, a very, um, we had two infamous attacks two days apart in 2014, one in Ottawa, one in Montreal, where two wannabes had their passports taken away and they killed people here in Canada. Mm-hmm. So essentially they said, you know, um, you've, you've forbidden me from achieving my destiny. I'm just going to, no, no pun intended. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to achieve it here, and and we had uh, we had two uh, lo- uh, military officers killed in uh, two days apart in October of 2014 by people that really wanted to go die over there. So seems a little strange a that it seems a little strange that they would revoke their passports and then not do anything extra. Well, again, and that see no, that's a really good point. And in fact, in both cases, uh, or at least in the one case, the um, it wasn't a Canadian passport. He was mm-hmm. trying to get a Libyan passport. So mm-hmm. we have a little less, um, I guess. Influencer. In the other case, he was actually talking to law enforcement, and we we told him we know what you're doing, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. I get, I've changed my mind. I'll, you know, I'll be a good boy now. I, I I've seen the light of day. You've you, you've reached me." And then three weeks later, he got in a car, waited in a parking lot until he saw a guy in uniform walk by and ran him over and killed him. Gotcha. So you know what? Even if you do talk to these guys, I mean, unless you actually charge them and incarcerate them, um, there's no guarantees they're not going to do stupid shit down the road. Eh? Yeah, that's true. I wonder also if, um, I can't speak to how it worked in Canada, but I know in America there are weird things where like, it's relatively easy to no-fly list somebody. Like I think if the FBI or some intelligence agency has a suspicion, they can no-fly list you, but that doesn't mean that they have enough to actually like charge you with anything or bring you in. Yeah. So they might have enough to no-fly yeah. list you and then you go and you kill a bunch of people, but they didn't really have enough to do anything to prevent you from doing that. Cause yeah, no, that's, that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. I think it's even easy in your country to, to lay charges than it is in Canada. I, I think we have a hell of a time doing that. And then the other problem we have, is that so where I used to work for the security service, um, we don't collect evidence, we collect intelligence, where it's, it's law enforcement, in our case, the RCMP, Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which is the National Police Force, they collect evidence. And there's, it, there's a big difference between those two, whereas in your country, the FBI does evidence right from the get-go. Mm-hmm. So if the FBI has enough information, they can go and lay charges. If the information that we have is solely intelligence-derived, that can't be used in court. It's not robust enough to go to court with. So we might be in a case where we have lots of information on you know Phil Gursky, but it's not... It's not strong enough to to constitute evidence, and therefore it won't go to court, and therefore you're not going to get any charges late. Yeah. So it, it's a real tough one to you know. This isn't easy stuff. Mm-hmm. It's all and and then of course you've got the whole in your country First Amendment, in our country the Charter rights to freedoms in terms of freedom of speech. Right. You can say an awful lot of stupid shit, um, and not be arrested for it and not be charged for it. And I think we certainly saw that, right? With the, you know, we, we talk about the whole far right thing in your country, which of course is now the, it's kind of the, the soup du jour, right? Everyone wants to talk about the far right. Mm-hmm. A awful lot of things that strike us in Canada is kind of skirting that that line between legal and illegal are completely legal in your land, and because of your very strong First Amendment, 
And yeah, so a lot of your crazy conservatives have started to come down here. Well, yeah. I started to with that. I know we've got pretty sure Stephen Crowder came from you guys, Lauren Southern, Jordan Peterson. Not to say that all oh, yeah. these people sorry, are the sorry, same. Sorry, but, sorry, sorry, uh, sorry. That, yeah, that's, our, that's one of our biggest exports, eh? We figure, let's just send them to the Americans so they won't be a pain yeah. in the ass here. Stefan Molyneux, yeah. Yeah, you guys really... But, <laughs> sorry about that. Our bad. Our bad. <laughs> to be fair, I like our freedom of speech laws. Might mean a little bit more terrorism, but maybe we... Disagree on that well, one, but I, mean, I understand, yeah. But, you know, but see, I mean, if you're going to err, err on the side of free speech, right? Because what we're seeing happen around the world now on a daily basis mm-hmm. is a lot of countries are essentially saying that anything that is that, that opposes the current government mm-hmm. is, is terrorism. Sure. So Turkey is saying that if you, if you don't support Erdogan, you're a terrorist. If you don't support Putin, you're a terrorist. If you don't support Mugabe, you're a terrorist. And, and a lot of countries are suspending all kinds of open media, social media, and uh, and news sources because they're basically in opposition to the governments, and they're they're changing laws to say that essentially you're a terrorist. So you know we don't want to go to that extent at the same time, right? But I, I think you know in, in countries like yours and like mine, where we're, we're liberal secular democracies, it's it's probably a better thing to allow more to happen than less to happen. That the real challenge is, is, as I said earlier, where do you draw that line, right? Yeah, because you don't want people, to, you don't want people to die, you don't want people being killed. Mm-hmm. But it's a tough one, and and essentially what it comes down to is it's a case by case basis. There is no pattern to this. There's no rubric that you can apply, and you just trust that your law enforcement intelligence agencies have enough information on which to make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. And even that's a, a, a whole other a ball of wax. I mean, one thing that people don't talk about is that. Um, the vast majority of people that say stupid shit online never do anything. Yeah. Right? They don't pick up a gun. They don't pick up a knife. They don't get into a van and drive down, you know, a, a busy uh, street in, mm-hmm. in, in Charlottesville or whatever and knocking over protesters. So For the sure. challenge becomes how do, you, how do you weed out the wannabes from the real ones? Yeah. Even the vast majority of radicalized people don't do anything, right? Yeah. It's exactly. just the minority, yeah, the minority, the minority. Yeah. Yeah. In all, all my time at the security service, we, we had legitimate investigations based on our legislation, but like maybe five percent actually ever did anything mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're, you wasted your time with the 95 percent because you have to figure out who they were and what their you know whether they had the intent or the capability but i think at the bottom line is that most people are either stupid uh incompetent or cowards mm-hmm. and i know that you know especially in, in your country and in january 6th kind of just kind of set the paradigm right now is that there's all kinds of, of you know incredibly violent laden speech or threatening speech online but 99% of those guys aren't getting out of their, out of their parents' basement. Yeah. And, and even and to be so a little we, bit more charitable to them, um, <laughs> um, I, I would say that um, a, a lot of it can just be like hyperbole and anger online too, yeah. right? Like it's easier yeah. to, to write online like, oh, I'm going to go bomb someplace or whatever without yeah. really ever actually wanting to do it. Like it's just a tweet. Yeah, it's attention or seeking in mm-hmm. some ways too. And you know. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You get your retweets and everything. Yeah. But it can be hard yeah, to um, figure out that there is some percentage of these people that's serious, but how do you ever discern one from the yeah. other, right? Well, exactly. You don't, you don't want to come in overbearing because if you do, then you look stupid and you start violating people's, you know, you know, constitutional rights out of our countries. But if, but then if you get it wrong, uh, people say, well, why did you get it wrong? And and the one thing we've learned in, in security intelligence and extensive law enforcement as well is that uh, you're only as good as your last failure. Yeah. Because nobody nobody really cares when you get it right. Mm-hmm. They just really care when you get it wrong. And this is, I mean, I, I've been really following the debate in your country over January 6th. Mm-hmm. And everyone's saying, you know, intelligence failure, intelligence failure, intelligence. This was not a failure of intelligence. The intelligence was there. It was a failure to act on it, and I, I'm not, I don't think I'm disclosing any state secrets, Steve. But your former president wasn't exactly someone that wanted to crack down on far-right extremism. True, were um, being given, were being listened to. Yeah, I might fight with you on this a little bit. The um, I wanted to buy that narrative a lot because I it was attractive to me, obviously, because I absolutely fucking hate Trump. Um, <laughs> But the ironic thing was, based on all the statements that were coming out, even at the time I saw this, I was like, oh, man. And now that the dust has settled, it actually seems to me like the January 6th thing was more the, um, I don't even remember the names anymore. Fuck, it's been so long. So I follow this so closely. Um, I think the mayor um, was so worried about the appearance of like federal troops and everything on. Yes. Yeah. And it ended up being that. I don't. I don't think I would lay any of the blame. Now, once they started asking for reinforcement, everything things get a little bit hazier. But I think I would. I would primarily lay the blame on the D.C. mayor for what happened. Um, I don't disagree with you. I mm-hmm. think you're right there. There certainly was, and it, you know, I mean, yeah, you, I'm the same. I, I feel the same way about Trump that yeah. you do. 
Um, he certainly wasn't helpful. Although I'm not trying to lay the blame on him, but I, I do know people that worked in intelligence. They were friends of mine, mm -hmm. whether for the bureau or the agency. And I would hear from them constantly that there was a, a real sense of frustration that they were trying to get messages across on a whole variety of things. But because of the ideological commitment of the last administration, mm -hmm. um, they were being ignored. Sure. Uh, they were being told, we don't want to hear that. Uh, you know, the president doesn't want to hear about this. He wants to hear about th this other thing. And, you know, when you work in intelligence, you're, you go to work to, every day for one, one reason, one reason only. You produce the best intelligence you can to help people make decisions, right? Mm -hmm. Senior policymakers, uh, prime ministers, presidents, ministers, all that kind of stuff. You're, you don't care the political stripe of who you're serving. And mm -hmm. you know, in, my, in my time in Canada, everything from far right to far left and everything in between, um, you're just there to say, here's what we know. Here's how sure we are. We're pretty confident this intelligence is true. And now what are you going to do about it? And if they choose to ignore it, it's not a damn thing you can do. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying we're, we're not right all the time. I'm not I wouldn't be so stupid as to say we're, we're right all the time. Mm -hmm. But in an awful lot of cases, we do have a sort of advanced warning that things are happening. And you do your best to get that message to those who need to hear it in a timely fashion. But, you know, it, it, the mixed metaphor I use is that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him use the intelligence. Sure. Yeah. yeah. There is something that you mentioned. You're only just by your last failure. Like I try to be sympathetic towards um, f towards failures to act because um, I, whether we're talking Benghazi or whether we're talking um, in the U.S., there was a guy that was under. Oh, I wish I could remember this case. There was a guy that went and he either did a school shooting or some like mass shooting and he was under FBI surveillance. And they knew at the time that he was under surveillance and then he went out and he did a shooting and, you know, everybody obviously was upset. Like, hold on, you guys were watching this guy and he still went on and did something like, what the fuck, what happened? Like, this, yeah. you guys are just worthless. But then, like, I noticed, because then I try to pay a little bit more attention, every single time afterwards, the FBI would, like, make a move on somebody. It's like, okay, well, hold on, you know, he made threats, blah, blah, blah. People were like, well, hold on, this guy just made a threat on Twitter. Like, this guy was just memeing yeah. right now. Like, come on, like, is this really, like, that serious? But everybody has 20-20 hindsight, you know? Like, that's, you might have some yeah. guy that's tweeting, like, you know, I hate people to play X video game, I'm gonna kill them all, blah, 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 blah. And everybody looks like, it's oh, it's a meme, it's a meme, it's a meme. But then as soon as the guy goes out and does it, people are like, yeah. look at this guy's Twitter feed. Obviously he was dangerous, <laughs> what's wrong? He's like, damn, like that's really hard to determine before they actually commit the action, you know? No, you're right, because if we were, you know, I think that's a really good point you just made, Steve. And I think that if, if, if the opposite were to happen and we were to crack down right from the get-go, when anybody made this, said something stupid online, imagine the reaction to that too, right? Mm -hmm. So this is why I, I, I'm not, and I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not getting going for the sympathy vote here, but you're basically damned if you do, and you're damned if you don't. And we've had a couple of cases here where we've got people dead to rights that are, you know, planning X, Y, or Z, and, and we stop them in time. Then we're, then we're accused of violating their rights or being overbearing, or you know, he didn't really mean it, or mm -hmm. you know, he was just kidding, or like, like, what do you want us to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know. So short of like things that where you're like specifically setting up something, it seems harder to, to get people on board with that. So I know in, um, I think it was in 2013, there was a guy in Kentucky in the U.S. And I think this was a big one because I think it was the, I think it was the one, the only refugee that we've caught that was trying to commit a terrorist act, I think. And it was somebody that was trying to sell arms to people in Iraq, but it was the FBI that he was communicating with the entire time and they caught him. Um, but that was because everything was, they basically got him like he's like dead to rights. Like he, the guy was trying to sell weapons or something, um, you know, to like a counterintelligence officer and you know, he got screwed for that. But well, and, that, and that's a, you've opened up a, whole, a really interesting dynamic and that's entrapment, right? At what point does, are you doing the, your job properly? So you're basically allowing the you're allowing the guy enough rope to hang himself, mm -hmm. and then and then basically before he does something, you actually arrest him. We had a famous case here, also in 2013, of a, a young couple on the west coast in Vancouver um, who wanted to blow up uh, a Canada Day celebration on July 1st, uh, and they had been inspired by the Boston Marathon bombers. So they they researched pressure cooker bombs, all that kind of stuff, which apparently doesn't take a rocket scientist to build. Mm -hmm. And um, but they were they were basically being followed by a, an RCMP agent. So, the, you know, he was kind of their go-to guy. And and then so they, they were arrested. Of course, the bombs were neutralized. They didn't work. They were arrested. A jury found them guilty. And then a judge said, no, no, this is entrapment. And, they, and the charge was thrown out saying that, you know, in the absence of the RCMP agent, they wouldn't have done this. And I, I actually testified in that case. I said, how do you know that? What if it Wait, what is agent? That's significantly different than how entrapment works in the U.S. How does entrapment, what is, what is considered entrapment in Canada? Well, in this case, they basically they said these people couldn't organize a piss up in a bar, uh -huh. and had it not been for the influence of the RCMP agent, this never would have happened. In other words, they claimed the RCMP created the plot and, and got these two hapless fools to buy into it. Therefore, they are entrapped by law enforcement.
Interesting. So in the United States, the way that it's supposed to work is it only counts as entrapment if you wouldn't have done it anyways. So like if an an agent... Well, so the way that it works is that like if an FBI agent were to concoct a plan to like, hey, like we're going to sell drugs to a whole bunch of school kids. If he walks up to you and he's like, hey, you know, we've got this whole ring set up to sell drugs to school kids. Do you want to join in on it? If you say yes, then you're, you, you can get dinged for that in the U.S. So it doesn't count as entrapment because you willingly, you know, signed right. up for a plot. Even if they set everything up, if you willingly join up to do it, you're still breaking the law. Now, if an FBI agent were to walk up to you and be like, hey, you're going to come help me sell drugs to kids or I'm going to beat the shit out of you or something really bad is going to happen to you. Well, now it's entrapment because now you're being pressured into doing something you wouldn't right. have to otherwise. Right. That's my understanding right. of the U.S. of how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Well, that, I think that's what the judge found in this case is that, I, you know, the, the, she basically saw these two people and then they were, you know, reformed drug addicts and all kinds of stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were living on welfare, blah, blah, blah. And she made the decision that, you know, there's no way in, in hell that these people have the capability of doing this. And, and I argued, well, again, you don't have to have a Ph.D. in chemistry to build a pressure cooker bomb. You don't have to have a, a Ph.D. in history to understand, you know, Islamist extremism. And, and yet she found that she said, well, I, I, I'm not convinced that these people were capable or willing. But it, but again, you know, where do you draw that line between people who express a desire to do something and mm-hmm. then and then are basically are. So the way that I try to express, OK, so you, you say the RCMP agent was, you know, led them by the nose. He was responsible. What if they found somebody who wasn't under our control, a person that wasn't an agent? Yeah, exactly. That's this is why it shouldn't count as entrapment, because if somebody else had set everything up, then they would have just went through with the crime. Right. Like, well, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, no, we, we, we see things differently in my country. I mean, there are times I mean, you know, I'm a very proud Canadian. I never want to be anything else. But sometimes I just shake my head at some at some of the things that the judicial system does up here. And, and I think it's because we're kind of naive. Um, you guys are a lot more. And, and let's face it. You guys had 9-11. And that had as an incredible blow to your psyche for such a long time. I mm-hmm. always say that we're still living in a, in a post 9-11 period. Mm-hmm. It may be dissipating a bit, although, you know, 20th anniversary come up this, this September. I, I think it, it had a tremendous effect. And so throughout the 2000s and 2010s, can you name a single case that failed a terrorism case in your country? I don't think there were any. So, you know, juries and judges were all too ready to say, yep, he was going to do this. He's going to do that. We're going to nail him and we're going to send him to whatever, to, uh, you know, Supermax or whatever, mm-hmm. because there was no political will to be seen as soft on terrorism. And I don't think we've had that kind of experience here in this country. And maybe judges and juries just aren't as, I don't know, aware Mm -hmm. of the possibility. Man, I'm sorry. I'm just reading this because I I try to be fair because I don't know, especially with you working in intelligence, I don't know if you would be a little biased on this, but this sounds wild to me. I'm going to have to read more on this. I I can't understand. So apparently they had been making threats at a mosque first, violent threats at a mosque first, and that's why... And, that, and the judges threw it out because they were like, they don't think that they, without, a, without an external force, they wouldn't have been able to work. That's wild to me. So essentially, you find people that are making a threat of mosque. You go up to them and it's like, yo, I've got this plan to set up some pressure cookers. Do you guys want to take these down and go, like, you know, do another bombing? They're like, hell yeah, let's do it. And then the judge throws that out saying you entrapped them. That sounds wild yeah. to me. I can't. Yeah. That's really, really, really weird. Okay. That's very interesting <laughs> well, to me. In actual, in actual fact, Steve, I, I worked on this case right from the get-go. And what you said, so that's obviously you found that in open source. So I don't, I don't have to betray any secrets here. Uh-huh. But you know, we were aware of these people were saying stupid shit in mosques and that kind of stuff for, for a while. And that's why it became a really good case, because we were able to penetrate them with an agent at a very early stage. So you had control of the situation. from. So there was never any risk to the public, mm-hmm. you know? So the pressure cooker bombs were inert. In the same way, our famous case, the Toronto 18 back in 2006, they got three tons of fertilizer. You know, it was kitty litter. We substituted kitty litter so they wouldn't be able to, to, to hurt anybody. So And you guys, you were able to get these guys to plant. So I'm just, I'm reading this, planting homemade bombs outside a government building. You had them all the yep. way to the point where they actually planted what they thought were bombs. And then, and then try to detonate it and it didn't work. And they walked. That's insane to me. Wow. Okay. Jeez. Yeah. Well, why don't you come north, Steve, and try to set our judges straight? <laughs> oh my goodness. My understanding is that, and I could be wrong, but I, I read so many like legal people like talk because entrapment is supposed to be a really uh, misunderstood thing in the U.S. Um, I, I'm almost positive that under U.S. law, entrapment means that they have to like force you to do it. If they present you the opportunity to commit a crime and you jump on it, it doesn't count as entrapment in the United States. Well, in actual fact, in this case, uh, if you read more about it, the the agent gave them ample opportunity to back out. Like, are you sure you want to do this? Mm-hmm. Are you sure you want to do this? 
are you sure you want to do this? And How do wait? Yep, do you yep, yep. the defendants also demonstrated that they were not very intelligent? <laughs> so what, is that a good excuse to? Well, no shit, Sherlock. They were again. They weren't the sharpest pencils in the box, right? But boy, if we start judging people guilty or not guilty based on intelligence, we're, we're going to we're going to have a bunch of empty jails. I think uh-huh. there aren't a lot of bright lights in jail, right? Yeah. Um. You, you, know, you can't use that as an excuse for un- unless you're mentally incompetent. That's a whole other. That's a whole other thing. Well, definition. We had a guy that walked into a, um, an armed forces recruiting center with a knife and started slashing people. And he was found not guilty by uh, not mentally competent. Again, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not, yeah. I'm the last, I don't want to rule on this. But. I, yeah, we can move on. This is, this, is, this is wild to me. The judge noted that while the couple does adhere to extremist views that advocate violence to send political messages, police overstepped the bounds of their authority. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, I'll, I'll welcome, welcome to our world. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Um. Yeah, I don't know, man. What? I'm sorry. Wait, there are like there are so many implications to h- how you do undercover investigations and in, and in, in oh, because in the United States fight. we do like we do so much like this in terms of so there's a really famous case in the United States of a woman. Um, I'm trying to I don't know how police set this up, but a woman basically contacted a man to murder her husband because she wanted to add the relationship. But the guy that she contacted was an undercover agent, and he worked with her the entire way to set up the assassination. And they even got the point to where they faked the murder scene, like they uh, they they had police lines where they uh, they blocked off the house, and then the woman went in for questioning, and she was crying, and she and then eventually they revealed like, hey, we've got tapes of everything. Thing. we know that you set this whole thing up or whatever i wonder if in canada that would get thrown out as entrapment because the police officer would have been the the quote-unquote assassin or something i don't know well you know i, I think in this case too it it, it it varies from judge to judge right mm-hmm. so for whatever reason like i said they were found guilty by jury and it was the judge that said i'm going to uh, set aside this ruling this this guilty verdict by the jury because i have serious issues with it mm-hmm. so she threw it out and then the, the british columbia court of appeals backed her mm-hmm. and said yes this was entrapment and so these people are basically they're free so they you know and and i don't know i mean <laughs> i don't want to go there but i'm i'm, I'm smelling a lawsuit down the road of you know uh, unfair treatment or uh, unfair attention or something but we mm-hmm. do that a lot here in canada we, we pay these people um but uh, yeah, again, it just goes to point to, you know, you've got everything in place. You've got your surveillance. You've got your, you've got your, you go to federal court to get warrants to intercept communications. You, everything you, you check every box, mm-hmm. and at the end of the day, they say, well, you know, you checked too many boxes, or you didn't check enough boxes, or you know, you didn't do your job properly. And that's yeah, it's, it's really, really frustrating. And the bottom line is, no one died. So you sure. know, even if they walked, um, that could have been pretty, pretty bad. I, mean, I don't know if you remember the Boston Marathon, right? I mean, only three people died. Like 250 were wounded by shrapnel when mm-hmm. those things went off at the near the finish line of the Boston Marathon. This was going to be on Canada Day in the afternoon. Would have been a so in BC the the, the um, legislature is on in Victoria in Victoria on Vancouver Island. This beautiful legislature, beautiful lawn. There you know would have been all kinds of kids and families there enjoying Canada Day. I mean, who knows what the, the death toll would have been or the injury toll. Mm-hmm. So even if these people got out on a technicality, call it, um, no one died mm-hmm. and no one got hurt. So. I guess that's you got to be satisfied with that at the end of the day. Yeah. Okay. So recentering, <laughs> straight <laughs> quite a bit off. Um, so you wrote a book relating to how Canada investigates um, using counterintelligence for terrorist activities committed by Canadians abroad or committed on Canadian soil. What is uh, what's the name of your book? Wait, where's the link where we can buy this? Just so I can. Start. Oh, it's called it's called the Peaceable Kingdom. Mm-hmm. That's an old word that refers to Canada. Uh, so it's on my website. So borealisthreatenedrisk.com is the website. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's real cheap because it's self-published. And uh, yeah, it's been selling really well, actually. I think I've sold more copies of this book in a month and a half than I have of my first five books in five years. Oh, geez. Well, <laughs> so, nice. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? This, for me, this was a bit of a, it, it, you know, it's this is my sixth book. I, I, so I, I like to use a lot of hockey metaphors because I'm, I'm Canadian mm-hmm. and because I'm a goalie in hockey, although not a very good one. Mm-hmm. Um, so this book is the goalie's book. So it's, it's the sixth player on the ice, the goalie who stops the, who stops the pucks from going in the net. This is by, my... Um, my tribute to the men and women who stopped pucks from going in our net over, you know, the past 153 years. Gotcha. Let's see. So I don't want people to not buy the book because we spoil it. But if you had to list or think of a couple of cool examples of like, here are some things you probably don't know about a Canadian counterintelligence operation. What do you think are like, um, don't obviously don't give away the most surprising stories <laughs> in the book. But what do you think is like a surprising thing that a lot of people wouldn't realize? Um, the, the very first act of terrorism in Canada mm-hmm. took place uh, before we were one year old as a country, 
uh, it took it took place in Ottawa in 1868, and our, one of our what we call our fathers of Confederation was killed by an Irish terrorist. And that was in the wake of here, here's a here's something to uh, enhance bilateral relations, Steve. In 1866, a bunch of fe- of Irish Americans called the Fenians invaded Canada to put pressure on Britain to give Ireland independence. And so they crossed they crossed the river at Buffalo, and they got halfway up the Niagara Peninsula before they were beaten back by a bunch of uh, British militia and students from the University of Toronto. Um, but they wanted to basically uh, take over Canada, which would force Britain to grant Ireland independence. But it, 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 so two years later, one of them assassinated uh, this guy one block from Parliament, shot him and killed him. And that was the first act of terrorism in our country. And it was less less than a year after we became an independent nation. Gotcha. Well, there you go. <laughs> you know, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, don't make the headlines because because they don't go anywhere. And there's it, it, the book talks about, you know, talking to people. I, mm-hmm. I remember a case that I worked on where um, there's this guy, fairly young guy, saying stupid shit online. So we decided to go knock on his door and say, hey, mm-hmm. um, we're from the security service. And uh, we've heard from a reliable source that this is what you're saying online. Uh, you know, basically, you want to scare the shit out of someone, right? Yeah. Like, you know, if the FBI comes knocking at your door, you're probably going to pay attention. Yeah, I've, I've had a few of these visits, so yeah, go ahead. <laughs> and, you know, they say, okay, we're, this is your friendly security service saying that um, you might want to think twice before you, you, you do anything dumb. And, you know, so I don't think, uh, to me, I think it's a good tactic, especially early on if someone's just kind of dipping their toe in the water. And so, yeah, this, so this guy said, yeah, 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 I get it, I get it, I get it. And he um, kind of stopped doing it. And then, interestingly enough, six years later, Guess who comes back on the radar? Same guy. guy exact same guy. He didn't listen. He listened to us for a little while, and then six years later decided, yeah, nope, I'm going to uh, go back to what I used to do. I have no idea whatever happened to him, mm-hmm. but I, I think what this points to is that um, there are no guarantees in this business. Mm-hmm. No matter what you do, it's really, really hard to get some people to disavow themselves of this kind of ideology. It's, do you? Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, or sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just gonna ask: Do do you guys segregate your intelligence agencies out between like foreign and national surveillance and everything too? So kind of like how we have like the CIA and then the NSA and then the FBI. Like, do you yeah. have like different? Okay, so we we have an NSA equivalent. Mm-hmm. It's called CSE. So Communications Security Service. I actually worked there for seventeen and a half years before I joined the Security Service. We don't have a CIA. Um, believe it or not, Canada is the only member of the Five Eyes that mm-hmm. does not do overseas foreign intelligence. Gotcha. I know. Don't, don't get me started. It's a, it's a big debate in this country because Canadians are too goddamn polite. So we don't have a CIA equivalent. Mm-hmm. And so the, where I used to work in the security service is kind of like the FBI, but it's not law enforcement. So what happened is in the early 80s, we decided to differentiate law enforcement from security intelligence, kind of what the Brits did. So you know the Brits have MI5, okay? This mm-hmm. is the British, British Secret Service, mm-hmm. um, security service rather. That's what CSIS is in Canada. And then we work with the law enforcement, the RCMP, when it, when, it, when it goes from intelligence to possible criminal acts. That, the RCMP has to do their own investigation to actually get, get enough evidence and lay charges and arrest people. So we don't have a CIA equivalent in Canada and probably never will. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, this, when, when CSIS was created in 1984, people were so paranoid about Canada being perceived as having spy service, they put this clause in the CSIS Act that says, oh yeah, you guys can collect foreign intelligence, but only within Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, who else says that? Like, I mean, it's yeah. foreign intelligence for a reason, right? It means it's outside of your country. <clears throat> Is our, but we won't, we won't collect it in Canada. In the USA, does the NSA have the ability to levy charges? Do you know? No. Okay, no. gotcha. And, and, and NSA cannot spy on Americans in the same way that CSE can't uh, listen in on Canadians. Mm-hmm. That, that's against your constitution. That's against our charter. So you have to get a warrant to, to intercept communications in both our countries. Mm-hmm. So the Signals Intelligence Agency is limited to listening to foreigners so gotcha. of course you know nsa's fort george Meade in washington they got listening stations all over the world mm-hmm. um they can gather up as much as they want but they can't listen in on american conversations or canadian or british or or australian or new zealand so the five eyes can't spy on each other mm-hmm. that was the agreement that was made after the second world war but we can spy on everybody else um but yeah there's a there's really very strong things in place to make sure that we're not violating constitutional rights gotcha and I don't know. I don't know about the FBI, but like warrants are not handed out like candy. You've got to really show to a judge that you deserve this. This is extraordinary power for the state to have. And you have to demonstrate like up to yin yang that you need this power to prevent something bad from happening. And I know from experience, I mean, I never applied for a warrant myself, but I had many friends who do. And if you're not on your game, 
the judge says, fuck off. We're not, I'm not giving you a warrant. You have yeah. to come back and show me that you need this because I'm not going to grant you this power because it's, it, is a, it is a very, very intrusive power and you've got to prove to me that you need it. And if you can't prove to me, I'm not going to give it to you. Which I think is good. I guess the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, for that, I think you're talking about like well, in the U.S. it would be our FISA courts basically, right? Yeah, FISA wars, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's not uh, it's not a slam dunk by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, it, you know, you look at you know our, our history. I mean, yes, we're the five eyes, but there, there, there's incredible cooperation, and it always has been. I, I look at the amount of sharing that these five countries do, and it's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, there's very very sensitive information that is that is shared amongst these five partners, and again, it speaks, I think, to the fact that we, we trust each other. Um, this is a, a well-established alliance that's been going on now for 75 years. Mm-hmm. And and during the Cold War... By the way, did you know the Cold War started in Canada? I did not know that. In September of 1945, after we won the war and Joe Stalin was our best friend, there, a cipher clerk at the embassy, the, the Soviet embassy in Ottawa defected, and he, he, he told the RCMP that the Soviet embassy had been spying on Canadians for 20 years. No one knew that. And that was the start of the Cold War. Crazy. I did not yeah. know that. Um, hold on, wait. I okay, because I see a couple people in chat are posting. Uh, okay, so the the FISA warrants in the United States have an incredibly high approval rate, and people tend to cite that as trying to imply that FISA warrants are basically just rubber stamps. My understanding is that the reason why those have such a high approval rate is because they're tough warrants to get. There's usually a lot of back and forth communication between like the FISA warrant people, so the judges, and then the people in law enforcement that are trying to get those warrants. So you're not going to go to a judge to apply for a FISA warrant if you know that you've got like shitty reasoning for it. That like because the threshold is so high and there's a lot of back and forth that goes on there, that typically they're only going to bring applications for those warrants if they know that they're going to get approved. That's my yeah. that's how I that's articles that I've read in terms of like why why that um, approval rate I is think, so high. I think that's true. Because if you go if you go forward with a bunch of shitty information oh, too many times in a row, next time you go up, the judge says, "Piss off! I don't want, I don't want to see you today." So you don't want to get on a judge's bad side by wasting his or her time. Mm-hmm. So you make sure you've dotted all your t- all your eyes crossed all your uh, you dotted your eyes crossed your t's because uh, you want to show from the get go that yes, you've done your homework and that you've you've uh, looked at all the cases and and the reasons why. Because you you, you don't want to walk away looking stupid, and and so that's maybe that's why you get such a high approval rate. I don't think our approval rate is, is that high in Canada. Not from I've heard anecdotally, which means that either judges are just reluctant to do it or the applications aren't as robust as they should be. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, what, um, so coronavirus lockdown time um, seems like a bad time for terrorists. How have they been doing over the past year? Feels like in a lot of countries <laughs> you're missing out on a lot of opportunities for big gatherings or anything. You know what? That's a great question. And um, a buddy of mine I used to work with just came out with a, uh, a paper. Um, and he said, there's been this assumption that COVID would lead to more terrorism. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, it appears to, to lead to less. And there's two, two ways to interpret that. One is what you just said, is that uh, you know, there aren't as many large gatherings as you had before. And what does a terrorist want? Who wants gathering. a large gathering? Yeah. yeah. So you're not going to get as many. You still see it happening in Afghanistan and Somalia, Nigeria. And because it's going to happen there anyway, regardless of COVID or not. Mm-hmm. The other thing, of course, is the lack of travel. No one's going anywhere. So you don't have Americans and Canadians going abroad. You don't have people trying to come into our country and doing things. The other thing which is interesting about the whole COVID thing is there's been this assumption, which, again, my, my, my buddy showed categorically was wrong, at least so far, that the lockdowns and the economic downturn and the anti-vaxxers and, the, you know, the COVID conspiracy theorists would get so angry at what's happening that you'd get a lot more what, what you guys call domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. And we haven't seen that either. We haven't seen an uptick in, you know, January 6th notwithstanding, which I'm not even sure was totally an act of terrorism. That's a big argument that, you know, we've been having for months now. Mm-hmm. But we haven't seen an uptick in, in, in domestic terrorism. since. We've had more demonstrations and more, more people saying stupid shit online. But as I said before, everybody said stupid shit online. Mm-hmm. So we haven't had that one-to-one relationship. And I've been kind of pushing back on that saying, you know, why did we assume... That just because COVID was here, we're going to see an increase <clears throat> in acts in our country. People are angry. People are angry all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, look back to other economic downturns. Did we see an increase in, in previous economic downturns? The answer is no. No, this is a special time. You know, I, I've seen the impact on your country. Was it you're over 500,000 deaths now, I believe, from COVID? Um, the economy's in the tank. I mean, who knows what the, the budget? My country's a trillion dollars in debt because of this. I don't know what your country is. Didn't, didn't Biden just sign a $9 trillion 
Uh, one point nine trillion dollar. One point nine trillion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, all of our economies are in a shitter right now, and it's going to be a while before we recover. But we haven't seen a correlating uh, spike in terrorist attacks, mm-hmm. and I'm not surprised at that because again, I, I think the, the bottom line, and you know, for everyone that, that's on the on the on the live stream today, people have to realize that in Canada, United States, thankfully, terrorism is a blip. It's a rounding error mm-hmm. in terms of criminal behavior in our countries. Now, if you're in Afghanistan or Somalia or Nigeria, it's, it's the opposite. It happens all the time. I, I, I tweet daily about attacks in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and in Somalia and Nigeria. In our countries, it happens very, very rarely. You guys and did so you have, have you had a big mass shooting or something last year, didn't you? Right? You got like AR-15s banned or some crazy shit happened. We we got we had a, a guy that basically borrowed a an RCMP vehicle, an RCP uniform, mm-hmm. and shot twenty two people out east. Yeah, but we wouldn't call that terrorism. That like his motivation wasn't terrorist. He just wanted to kill people. Mm-hmm. In the same way, if you want to talk about the guy that the, the, the so called incel guy in Toronto who was found guilty on all twenty six counts, he wasn't a terrorist either. He was a mass murderer. He he fantasized about setting a record for mass murders. That's what do you, mass murderers unless they're terrorists. Do you guys have a stringent definition of terrorism in Canada? We do. Um, stringent up to a point. So according to the criminal code, an act of terrorism is a serious act of violence, mm-hmm. either planned or executed, for political, ideological, or religious reasons. That's what the criminal code says. Now, define ideology. Yeah, or political, define, right? Define political, right? Mm-hmm. In the end, the guy in Toronto was essentially a uh, bit of a loser, and he'd been fantasizing about Columbine and uh, what was that one in Connecticut, uh, Sandy Hook. He'd been co- fantasizing about those for, for years or for months and months. Mm-hmm. And he basically wanted to set a record. Uh, of, of, he wanted to become famous by becoming a, an infamous mass murderer. Now, he claims to have been an incel. And I read the judge's uh, report on this. The judge said he basically lied about most things, mm-hmm. including the fact that he knew Elliot Roger, that he knew Chris Mercer, and he'd been in touch with them, blah, blah, blah. He was using the incel as a veneer. He mm-hmm. wasn't actually an incel. He, yeah, he had he had issues with women. He had issues with dating and relationships. But he wasn't the same way that Elliot Roger went out explicitly because he wanted to do that, right? This guy was a whole mass of, of motivations. But the primary ones, he wanted to kill a whole bunch of people. Mm-hmm. So he was not charged with terrorism. And he was not found guilty of terrorism. He was found guilty of mass murder. 10 counts of first-degree murder and 16 counts of attempted murder. Gotcha. So, I, you know, I think we got to be really careful. Sometimes terrorists are mass murderers, but most mass murderers are not terrorists because the reason they do so has nothing to do with politics, ideology, or religion. Mm-hmm. They just want to kill people because it, it gets them off. Sure. Right? Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think we, we run into real problems when we start calling too many things terrorism because it kind of waters down things. You know, I don't know, Steve, in your country, but there was no terrorism offense in Canada before 9-11. I imagine there must have been in the U.S. But... Because we, we brought in legislation in December of 2001 after 9-11. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, you couldn't be charged with terrorism. You mm-hmm. could be charged with murder, attempted murder, whatever. And I've argued, and I worked in counterterrorism for 15 years, I've argued that we could get rid of the terrorism clause tomorrow. Wouldn't make a damn bit of difference. Mm-hmm. You can still charge them with murder, attempted murder, assault, whatever. Um, terrorism just makes it complicated. In fact, it, you know, if you're the prosecution, you have to prove motivation. You don't have to prove the act. If I catch you with a knife in your hand and a body at your feet, I, I kind of know you killed the guy, right? Yeah. What? How do I know why you killed him? Unless you tell me, or unless you have a manifesto like uh, Anders Breivik there in Norway with his 1,500-page manifesto, who's the guy in 2011 that killed those kids of that island. So why, why complicate things by seeking motivation when you can get an easy verdict, guilty verdict, on the act itself? Something yeah. to think about, right? Yeah. I don't know. We seem to go back and forth a lot on, uh, like, arguing what the definitions of terrorism is or what counts as a terrorist attack or what counts as a terrorist organization or stuff like that. Yeah, and I've seen a lot of conflicting stuff thrown around where some people are like, well, if it's terrorist, it has to have, like, foreign funding or foreign influence. Or I've heard your that's definition what, as yeah. well where it has to have, like— That's, a where, your, that's a where your country went it, for, it, for the longest time. And I mm-hmm. think January the 6th is changing the dialogue in your country. But prior to that, to be terrorist in the United States, it had to have a, had to have a foreign link. If the link wasn't there, it wasn't terrorism. They called it something else, and which is a kind of an artificial a distinction, isn't it? Like, why does the foreign link have to be there? Who cares? It's all about the motivation. The problem is, as you said, um, last time I checked, there's over 200 definitions of terrorism around the world. Yeah, it's a really inconsistent thing, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the UN has one. You guys have one. We have one. Academics have one. Law enforcement has one. The EU has one. Yeah, it's a real dog's breakfast of definitions, and I think 
it just complicates things too much. Where it, it, it's it's lived, it's outlived its usefulness. I mean, I get it. I get nine eleven. I get the the impact that's had. But you could, I mean, had those guys survived, you could just as easily have charged them with three thousand counts of first degree murder, right? Yeah, you didn't have to charge them with, with, with terrorism. I mean, anyhow. But it's it's an emotional thing. But you know, um, people just can't agree on the definition, and that that really muddies the waters when you're trying to actually prosecute somebody. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm not sure it's all that necessary anymore. Yeah, um, I I just don't know. Yeah. The the only thing I could possibly think of, like that, I wouldn't maybe maybe a terrorist charge like gives you the ability to do a bigger investigation or indict more people or something. I don't know, but it um, might. Yeah. Um, but what I found interestingly in my country is that being found guilty of terrorism does not lead to a significantly longer sentence. Mm-hmm. So the the guy that walked to a mosque in Quebec City in in 2017, he killed uh, six people at prayer. Mm-hmm. He wasn't even charged with terrorism, despite the fact he definitely had some far right extremist leanings. Mm-hmm. He was charged with terrorism, and and he pleaded guilty, and he got 40 years in jail, which is pretty significant in Canada. Trust me. Mm-hmm. Um, so we didn't need to go down that terrorism road, and we have a, an interesting case that's before the courts now of a a guy after that Manassian guy in Toronto. He stabbed a woman in Toronto, I think last year. Uh, killed one, wounded one. He was arrested, charged with murder. And then three months later, they changed the charges to terrorism. And now they're going to have to prove that he did it for terrorist reasons. And I'm not sure they're going to get there. Sounds really hard, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, damn. Yeah. Um, well. I was going to ask you, I, I, I'm not sure how to pose this question, but... There's an awful lot of talk uh, in your country, and I see that you host people all the time, and sort of in this regard, mm-hmm. this whole this no, notion of domestic terrorism, right? Far far right terrorism, you know, mm-hmm. like white nationalists and proud boys and oath keepers and boogaloo boys and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people say that this is kind of the um, the new priority, and that we should actually stop caring as much about other forms of terrorism, what you would call normally foreign terrorism, so like ISIS and Al Qaeda, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I get real worried when I hear that because it's true, especially in the United States. I think there's a real concern about the far right. Mm-hmm. We certainly have seen a, a lot of action that is, you know, certainly is violent in nature. But when you look at it beyond your sort of your national borders, 99% of all attacks that are carried out in the world aren't carried out by the far right. They're carried out by jihadis. They're carried out by Islamist extremists, whether it's Afghanistan or Pakistan or Somalia or Democratic Republic of Congo or Mozambique or Nigeria or, or Mali. I think this goes on and on and on mm-hmm. and on and on. And I'm wondering, why is everybody so insistent that that's kind of like yesterday's problem? Well, I think that away. because when you think about domestic terrorism, at least in the United States, I think it's more considered to be a far right problem that we don't have much jihadi terrorism or ISIS terrorism going on on U.S. soil anymore. No, I don't disagree with you. Um, What I'm worried about is that people are now extrapolating beyond that and saying that, you know, the the number one priority for law enforcement, security, intelligence should be the far right, meaning we should take resources away from the other guys. Mm -hmm. And and there's one thing I know when you take resources away, that's usually when something bad happens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) When you shift from A to B, usually it's A that blows up next. And, 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 you know, the problem is that you've always got finite resources. And my my worry is that in, in in a COVID period where you're gazillions of dollars in debt, do you think that the FBI and CSIS and, and, and are going to get more resources tomorrow? It, it ain't going to happen because sure. there are other priorities. You got to get your economy going for Christ's sake, as we do here in Canada. So my fear is that you're going to put more and more um, burdens on your on your law enforcement and security services, but not give them more money and resources to do it. Which means they're going to have to make choices about who to follow. Let's not even get into foreign interference and foreign espionage and cyber attacks, mm-hmm. which are happening on a daily basis, right? Whether which it's the Chinese totally or the North Koreans or the Russians, about, or, but yeah, you know, I mean, I mean you know, when, when you work in this in this business, I mean, that that's what when you go to work in the morning, you, you kind of you got like nine balls in the air, and, and you can only juggle two. So, which two do you choose that day? Yeah. So the and, worry and, would be that if we are doing, uh, if we start increasing surveillance on like far right groups in the U.S., that perhaps it gives the opportunity for uh, yep. jihadists or somebody to come back, maybe. Yeah. But I don't think you. On the other hand, I'm not. I'm not saying you shouldn't increase resources. And I think the United States is an outlier in this way. Mm-hmm. Maybe Germany too. Germany. Germany's got a significant problem with this. But most other countries that I've seen, I mean, I, I would still say that the vast majority of our citizens who think that terrorism is a good idea are still leaning more towards the jihadis and not towards the far right. But you've got to figure a way, a way to do the two simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And then to throw something else in the mix, what about the far left? 
which is a whole contentious issue, right? And I'm not I'm not trying to you know, jump in the bandwagon about Antifa and all that kind of stuff, but the day is coming when you're, we're going to get probably a growth in what we what we would call far left terrorism. You know, yeah, it's possible. I think global warming, that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I think in the U.S. we haven't really seen any of that yet. I think generally no. what we see domestically no. is the far right stuff, so that's where the focus is. But I mean, yeah, hopefully they can multitask, right, and they still keep eyes well, on. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and I and I think that you know, people that I worked with, I mean, they they were generalists by nature, so the, the actual investigation itself didn't matter. They mm-hmm. they had the skill set to you know recruit the human sources, do that kind of stuff. It was guys like me, the specialists in the background, mm-hmm. who would help them understand. You know, okay, I don't understand what this guy's saying. Can you tell me? Well, yeah, here's what he's saying. So this is where the analysts come in because the analysts have the have the ability to specialize. The actual you know agents. Uh, they don't specialize. They're hired for their skill set as being able to run an investigation, irrespective of whether it's a foreign espionage investigation or counterterrorism or God knows what. Mm-hmm. But you've got the specialists in the background who have that you know unique knowledge that can help them when they get into trouble when you know their target says something or whatever they don't understand. So I, I think you know I think the FBI is well placed. I think CSIS and RCMP are well placed. Uh, you know we're not going to get it perfect um, because we're human. Yeah, of course. We we get a lot more things right than we get wrong. But as I said before, it's only it's only when you get things wrong that people say, "Hey, you yeah. fucked up. Why did you fuck up?" Yeah. Yep. True. Um, is there anything else you want to go over? Anything else you want to talk about? This is good. This has been a this has been a pretty good wide ranging talk. So I just want to thank you, Steve, for giving me the opportunity to to, to plug the new book. So again, it's on borealisthreatenrisk.com. Um, and I'm also I, I don't want to steal your thunders, but I also do live streaming as well on on all things terrorism related. Um, usually at, at eight p.m. Eastern. But again, I don't want to interfere with uh, with your live streaming at the same time. No, yeah. Um, what is your um, yeah? What's your link to your stream or what do you stream? Yeah, so, so so go just go to you put in Phil Gursky on YouTube mm-hmm. and you'll find me. You'll, I'm the only Phil Gursky out there, and so I live stream at uh, eight o'clock Eastern on uh, just on right now on Mondays and Thursdays. Mm-hmm. You're generally a theme for the night. So the tonight's theme is going to be about how some terrorist causes never go away. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to deal with a cause that's been there for oh about 800 years. Um, and it, we have, to, you know, and the beauty, of course, that you know, I'm just I'm new to live streaming. Right? You're you're a veteran at this. I'm just a new, I'm a newbie. Is the the ability to have the conversations with people and, and have a direct dialogue going. So it's kind of cool. Gotcha. I'm really enjoying it. 